Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts, and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values, and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's show. I hope you're doing well. I am continuing the series on sustainability today with an interview with Dr. Bridget Custin, who is a research fellow at uh, the Oxford Said Business School. And she's been involved in something called the Ownership Project, which um, has uh, an awful lot in it. And we cover an awful lot in the the interview. It's um, a really in-depth exploration of what ownership means for family business so uh, again i'm excited to bring that um, to you before i get into the conversation with bridget just a reminder that if you are enjoying the content that is being produced there are various different ways you can support the show so you can head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash support and i've outlined the various different ways you can do that my thanks again go to those that have already either bought me a coffee, which is a way to make a, a one-off donation to content creators, those that have provided ratings for the shows and, and shared the show uh, with your family. The audience numbers continue to grow, so I'm very grateful for that. But obviously the content I produce, I want to be as useful for as many people as possible. So please do feel free to share this amongst Uh, other family business members or family businesses that you work with so that they have access to it as well. So as I say, we're talking to Dr. Bridget Custin today around something called the Ownership Project. And what I recommend is you go to the show notes for this episode, which is again, fanbizpodcast.com forward slash ownership dash project. And that will give you the link to the report and toolkit that we are discussing in today's show. It's really worthwhile reading. Uh, It doesn't just cover sustainability. It covers all sorts of aspects of ownership, but it is well worth a read. So please do go and check that out. And the link is on that web page. So without further ado, I will pass over to the interview and I hope you enjoy it. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am speaking today with Dr. Bridget Custin from Oxford Said Business School. Bridget is a research fellow and qualitative lead, easy for me to say, on uh, something called the Ownership Project, which I'm really keen to talk about on uh, the show this week. But before we get into that, Bridget, firstly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I gave you a bit of an introduction there, but if you could give our audience a bit more in terms of the background and clarify who you are, what you do, and how you came to be doing it. Sure. So about four years ago, the Ford Foundation and the dean of the Said Business School, Peter Tofano, uh, and the previous dean, 
Colin Mayer were having a conversation where they wanted to launch a research project examining where in the world economic activity might, broadly speaking, be doing the right thing, the responsible thing. And they landed on the question of large family businesses. And so for the past nearly four years now, I have been part of a multidisciplinary team headed by Peter Tofano and Colin Mayer that has been studying family businesses with revenue over a billion dollars. And broadly speaking, we're trying to understand how family values, family purpose might find expression in the core operating businesses. It's a global project. Uh, luckily, most of the, the field research was done before COVID, so there was a lot of travel. Uh, we have finance management. I'm an anthropologist by training. And so we've been approaching the, the topic of these large family businesses with the, the disciplinary fullness that they deserve because they are so complex. You mentioned there you're an anthropologist. Um, what what does that mean in terms of the? Because what I find I, I uh, we've mentioned off air I'm involved in uh, an academic research project, and what I find fascinating is I'm a practitioner, so I work with family businesses on a, a sort of a day to day basis from a practitioner's perspective. But when you do research and you look at it through different lenses you often see so many different things by having that expansive team and having that multidisciplinary team um, available to you. So, so what does anthropology lend in terms of the sort of lens to, to look at family business through? It's a great question. And I don't presume that anyone has any idea what anthropology <laughs> is. Uh, it is, broadly speaking, the study of people the study of human communities. And this is a fraught time for the human because we're living in the age of the Anthropocene, which is to say the era in which humans have shaped the planet through our domination of it. So it's it's an interesting time to be a human because we have more power and influence over our environments than we ever had before. And anthropology has many different methods. It does many different things. Jillian Tett, the editor of the Financial Times, just wrote a book called uh, Anthrovision. She has a PhD in anthropology from Cambridge. And she says that the utility of anthropology is the ability to see the world through another's eyes and really step into someone else's shoes and, and understand their logics and their ways of perceiving the world around them. Uh, a former professor of mine from my own uh, PhD studies, Anand Pandian, has a, a recent book out called A Possible Anthropology. And he says that there's a joy of communion that's possible in anthropology where people are able to, once again, bridge their own, by definition, limited way of understanding the world around them and commune with others. But there's a tension that cannot be resolved in anthropology as well, because to acknowledge the possibility of so many multiple realities is to then ask the question of, well, in the midst of all of this, what's true? What's right? What's verifiable? Uh, and anthropology likes to sit in that unresolvable tension and not presume to answer that question, but rather say, listen, by parsing all of these different realities, insights become possible that are beneficial to all. Fantastic. And I know when we get into uh, some of the detail around the findings from the ownership project, we're going to look at some of the storytelling and and sort of myth-making that exists amongst families. And, And I think, again, in terms of the 
research approach that you took am I right in thinking it's conversational the qualitative element of what you do is spoken rather than looking at say facts and figures from data sets is, is that is my understanding right there so on the ownership project the utility of having a uh, financial economists and management studies folks alongside anthropologists is that we do it all. So we have a quantitative data set that we built by hand that looks at the environmental, social, governance performance of uh, businesses with different ownership types from family owners to institutional owners to government owners. Uh, But with respect to my own work, you're absolutely right. This is person to person. There's no shortcut. It takes time. And it also takes a certain shamelessness on my part in terms of being willing to invite myself into others' lives. And Uh that requires a vulnerability and authenticity on my end uh, because I genuinely do find these people fascinating. And it's such a privilege and an honor for for people to trust me with their own vulnerabilities and their own stories. And, you know, these are people's families we're talking about. We're not talking about something distant or obscure, the most intimate relationships of of one's life. And, you know, when I started this research, I was actually really nervous that these billion dollar family members would respond really unfavorably to someone saying, hi, I'm a, I'm an anthropologist and I, I'm, treating you as my research subject. I'm studying you. The opposite happened. Everyone, (laughs) nearly everyone said, absolutely. This world is so bizarre and so complex. And we need it to be parsed for the bizarre combination of family and business that it is. And so I was pleasantly surprised by, um, sort of the, the urgency with which I was received. And, you know, that's by and large why access to families actually wasn't a challenge for this project, uh, because a lot of people really welcomed the opportunity to to share and a number of of principles of these family businesses. Uh, you know, men over the age of of sixty in their seventies said they found it therapeutic to be able to speak to someone who wasn't asking for their business mm-hmm. or their money, who really didn't want to do anything other than ask them about their relationship with their kids their non-family CEOs, and how they make it work day to day. The challenge for these large family business family members is that they have to argue against a number of caricatures that have very broad space in the public imagination. Anyone who's seen Succession on HBO or The Crown Crown on Netflix or King Lear, for that matter, understands that there's an expectation of dysfunction, of hubris, of uh, lots of not nice and not desirable elements to being extremely powerful, uh, having great wealth, and having the, the platform that a large operating business can potentially provide a family. So actually, the biggest barrier to, to research access uh, was, was helping those who were used to not speaking to others uh, as a matter of um, sort of just a matter of their general practice because they avoid public scrutiny, perhaps they've been burned in the past by unfavorable press coverage, or they simply just don't want uh, an unwelcome glare when, again, there is this uh, a tendency toward caricature. Uh, but the utility of anthropology is to presume the human, 
and to get beyond caricature. And, you know, even in public debates around inheritance taxes, intergenerational wealth transfer, I still don't find those debates to be useful when they don't acknowledge the humans that are the subjects of discussion, because they are people with all the frailties and vulnerabilities thereof. And not to mention the massive responsibility that comes with being the employer of tens of thousands, uh, livelihoods along one supply chain, perhaps massive environmental impact. These are big responsibilities to shoulder. And so it can be a, a lonely place to be. And I think that was why for so many, the opportunity to discuss that with someone and more importantly, hear what other families are doing um, was so compelling. And this was the, the, the carrot that we were able to offer was, listen, you know, once you tell us what you're doing, uh, we'll then be in a position to say what all your peers have, uh, have said as well. And you can understand where you sit in comparison to them. So we're, we're now in, the, in the, the stage of the research project of writing up all of our research findings. You mentioned that's the stage you're at in, in terms of the research project. So what what comes out of that now in terms of stuff that our audience can access to to find out more about what it is that um, you've covered and timeframes for for that and um, give us an overview of that side of it? Because again, the, the interviewing and the collecting of the data is one thing, but then producing the the output, I'm sure, is an entirely different um, beast to, to deal with. Absolutely. And since we're a business school, the goal is to have outputs that are useful for practitioners. So we'll do the the academic peer-reviewed journal article route because we have to, and that's what academia requires. But we're also going to have a number of outputs that are meant for family business owners themselves. And in fact, uh, what I can talk about now is something that I wrote called the Toolkit for Responsible Ownership. So this is the result of, as I said, uh, around three years of anthropological fieldwork with these large family businesses. And this toolkit centers on seven narratives that I observed family members telling themselves about themselves. And these seven narratives manifest in speech, in actions, in what I call rituals, And in their retelling and retelling and retelling, they move from stories or myths to perceived self-referential fact. And it's this journey from a story or a narrative that one might tell oneself about oneself uh, to something that through its retelling can be perceived of as fact, Mm -hmm. both by the family business community, but also the broader world. I find that journey to be a very interesting, but also consequential one, given, again, the the impact that large family businesses have on their communities, countries, the world. Yeah, and I find it fascinating as well. And I've been fortunate enough to um, see um, the the outline of the the toolkit, and it is fantastic. And I I will point people towards uh, that in our show notes. Um, To give us a feel for that though what are some of the narratives that um you see or you saw in your research that we can then perhaps dig into and i'm conscious we're doing a series on sustainability at the moment and i think we could possibly have an episode based on every single one of these narratives on their own so for for the the purpose of the 
series we're doing at the moment, we can then perhaps look at some of them through the lens of sustainability. But to, to give an overview of what they are, what, what are the seven narratives you saw? Sure. And before I say them, just to note that despite the amazing diversity of large family businesses, depending on jurisdiction, sector, uh, culture, that the language of these narratives was strikingly similar, which was why they really rose to the top amidst all the noise as these seven largely unifying narratives. So the first is family business as a force for good. Second, we have a long-term orientation. We think in generations, not financial quarters. Third, family owners are uniquely agile. Fourth, employees prefer working in a family-owned business. Our employees are like family. Fifth, I find this one to be the most interesting and, and, and rich. I don't consider the business as something that belongs to me. I consider myself a steward of it for the next generation. Six, we care about our community. And seven, that ubiquitous adage in the family business community, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Uh, so ubiquitous as to function almost as a, I suggest, a, an almost ritualistic incantation, reminding family principles of the precariousness of their situation, that it can be lost uh, with one wrong move, success is not guaranteed. Uh, it's a, it's that, that last one does a lot of work in terms of the messages that it's communicating. As I say, we'll, we'll provide links for people to, to read more about uh, these in full and because we're on a, a series sort of dedicated to sustainability there's a few of those that we can sort of really dig into to say well if the narrative is that family business is a force for good presumably sustainability is something that can be used as a force for good and therefore if that's the narrative family businesses everywhere are have a fully fledged sustainability strategy they have everything under control and I think both you and I would recognize that that's perhaps not the case so when you look at the the narratives how do we go from it being something that's perceived as fact to perhaps holding up a mirror and going well maybe it's not a fact but without you know shattering people's dreams that they have this uh, force for good in terms of their business how do you balance that out in terms of families utilizing that? Sure, it's a great question. Well, first of all, with the exception of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which is at its heart a, a cautionary adage, all the others are profoundly aspirational. I do believe, based on the families with whom I've spoken, that families want to be all of these things. And I do believe that for many of them, they might indeed have been some of these things at some point in time. There's tremendous pride in what has been achieved and in what the founding ancestor built and usually rightfully so. Uh, the challenge is that this backward looking orientation toward what the founder built up and the legacy of the business doesn't necessarily square with what's happened in the past 12 months. And it also doesn't necessarily square with what is being planned for the next 12 months. And there's a there's a challenge here to, to recognize that part of what keeps these perhaps is aspirations instead of empirically verifiable facts uh, are a number of taboos 
that exist within the family business community that I suggest get in the way of truly achieving these. So there's long recognized, for example, the the need to have succession planning discussions. This is going to happen around the dining room table. Uh, What doesn't happen around the dining room table are discussions around domicile, either the company domicile or the family's personal domicile for the management of their private wealth. Those are not intergenerational conversations. I was told by a number of family principals in interviews and in conversations that I was the first person to have ever asked them where they were domiciled. It's rude. It's crass. It's impolite <laughs> to, to ask something so baldly that touches on particularly personal wealth. And, uh, you know, anytime there's a taboo, anytime there's something that cannot be said, that is a massive opportunity. And that's a massive indication of a number of, of fears that sit there. And those fears are a blockage toward meaningfully engaging with these because on the narrative of we care for our community, uh, that's massively challenged if one doesn't pay taxes into one's community. Uh-huh. As an example, as an example. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great example as well, because if it's a narrative that's believed to be true, but it's not then backed up by behavior and by actual actions and, and what people are doing, it can be very easy to tell yourself that you're doing something and it we, we are this force for good and, and we do value our community. But if you then can't prove it, which is part of the way in which to report against sustainability goals is to actually prove that you are doing something. So when you can look at it and and take a sustainability goal of alleviating poverty, if you're not paying tax in a country where because of the um, company structure, then you can't really say you're performing against that sustainability goal if it's not something your behavior backs up. Is that, again, a fair example or have I misunderstood? It is. And, you know, listen, I, I grant the, the profound power of habits in all of this. And one example of that to stick with um, the discussion around taxes is that if one is talking about corporate domicile, tax sits with the CFO. This isn't going to be a boardroom discussion. A family member sitting on the board is, is uh, it's not going to be his or her place most likely to be discussing that. Why not? If this is an issue of community responsibility and, uh, you know, community belonging and and paying back into the country that maintains the roads and the electricity grid and the water supply that you rely on, um, then that really isn't just for the CFO. That is an issue for the board. But the topic probably doesn't sit with the board. Mm. What's the suggestion then for for families that that perhaps listen to this and go, okay, well, I've recognized some of our... um, narrative in in what has been said what are some of the steps that families can be taking to go okay let's let's sense check this let's hold that mirror up and go is this is this something that has become fact through us telling ourselves that we're doing it or can we prove that we're actually doing it sure well first of all I want to remind any listener that there is no such thing as being just a shareholder the number of times that I've encountered that formulation is striking. As a, as a civilian, right, as someone studying family businesses, I presume that family owners are all powerful and can enact their will, but they're cogs in a pretty big system if we're talking about billion-dollar businesses. 
And so it's actually pretty common for family members to feel disempowered, to feel marginalized within their own families, and to end up at a place where they say, listen, I, I don't feel that I possess power. I am, here comes the formulation, just a shareholder. So for board chairs, family CEOs, and these just a shareholders alike, there's something in the toolkit for you. Uh, this toolkit has a number of suggestions, which I have gathered from the idiosyncratic practices of the families with whom I've spoken. So pretty much everything in the toolkit is being done by someone. All I've done is gather all of these suggestions into one place, aware of the power of peer learning for family businesses. They should know that these are not outlandish possibilities. Um, so there's, there is something for everyone, no matter where they sit. If you are a family principal, you can implement a ESG strategy at the apex level, at the holding company level, right? If you are a next generation family member, you can initiate a conversation around a taboo topic in your family, right? So there's, there's actions, big and small, that will also yield dividends over different time periods, aware that we are working with intergenerational time horizons. Mm -hmm. One of the suggestions that you make under the myth and the narrative of family businesses as a force for good is looking at way in which employees are rewarded and potential for employee profit share and we are seeing different ways in which family businesses can be owned so here in the, the UK we have employee ownership trust as a, as a mechanism for empowering uh, employees to, to take control what else are you seeing from sort of the, a global perspective on ways in which families are uh, achieving this? Sure, that's it, it's such an essential topic, and that's why our project is global. So, in Ecuador, for example, employees receive fifteen percent of their employer's gross profits, and uh, this is. To me, this is an example of how giving profits to employees puts the rest of the family enterprise um, into question. So, you know, how much do you give to your philanthropy? What if you simply paid your employees more or gave them a share of your profits, right? There's other ways to cut the entirety of the, of the pie here when one is looking at the entire enterprise. Uh, yes, so sharing profits with employees, looking at different ownership structures. It's not new at all for a portion of shares to sit with a family foundation or a philanthropic interest. Uh, what I'm interested in more than just the redistribution of cash uh, are ways to think about having ownership not be concentrated into so few hands. I'm not saying that our research suggests that this needs to be the outcome because it doesn't, but it's a very important conversation to have uh, because of the other global currents that are out there right now that look at wealth inequality, the intergenerational accumulation of assets in ever fewer hands. And I think it's a, it is disingenuous for families to only look at their core business outputs as the sum of their contributions to the world and not think about how the fact of their ownership in aggregate also creates uh, a broader global system of inequality.
just picking up in terms of the point on focusing just perhaps on the operating business, the, the sustainability of the ESG strategy profile, that's something you suggest should be applied over the family's entire operations, isn't it? Rather than just the trading business as being the, the focus for that, it's something that they can instill within their uh, philanthropic um, activities, their role within the community, all that kind of stuff. It's it's an overarching thing rather than just something that applies to the business. Absolutely. And I think this is the most urgent conversation that that families can have with themselves is, I mean, it is, it, it is utter madness in a sense for energy, time, resources to be put toward instituting a corporate ESG strategy and then have the family office be engaged in a completely traditional set of investing activities that undo the gains, arguably, that their own core businesses are striving for, right? That's just a a cacophonous approach, whereas a unified approach across the holdings with particular attention to where it's, it's most difficult, perhaps, to implement this, that is where we're going to see some, you know, some, some meaningful progress. And, you know, and also to make sure that even if things are happening at the core operating business, they're happening at the right level. You know, this isn't just a health and safety issue. This isn't just a corporate social responsibility, a, a CSR issue. This is an issue that needs to come from the very top, the board level. One of the the other narratives that you mentioned about family owners uh, being uniquely agile and reading the, the bit from the toolkit that doesn't mean they can make agile good decisions (laughs) it doesn't necessarily mean that every decision is a good decision as a result of them being agile and again we hear about we're obviously still within the covid uh, pandemic and businesses have had to be agile and had to make decisions but i think the really valid point on that as well is that that doesn't mean they're always good decisions if you can make a bad decision quickly too right Well, the biggest limitation of family business research, ours included, is that there's this incredible survivorship bias. People only study the family businesses that have been around long enough to then be studied when researchers like us come along. No one is looking to do a in-depth assessment of all of those businesses that have failed and what led them to fail. And so what that means is that among the survivors, they say, well, listen, our agility has allowed us to do X, Y, Z. What we don't know is whether that same agility among all of those who lost their business or had a massive downturn, uh, where agility sat in the set of decisions that led to a downfall. So accounting for this tremendous survivorship bias on the question of agility, uh, what did come through very clearly from the anthropological methods is that one cannot understand family businesses without understanding the service provider ecosystem that creates the reality, the technical, legal, administrative reality in which large family businesses exist. And this is a, I I say that it was anthropological methods that led to this observation because anthropology doesn't start with the hypothesis that it then goes on to prove true or false. Instead, the methods require that you follow your research subjects to wherever they take you. And my research subjects kept leading me over and over and over again to the ultimate source of knowledge, which would be a professional service provider who advised X or who said they needed to do Y, right? That was the end game for so many. That created the sort of scaffolding of what reality even looks like. 
And, you know, service providers are all motivated by their own business models that will inspire them to say and do certain kinds of things. And that has to be accounted for in terms of what families are being advised to do, uh, number one. And number two, that's still pretty limiting, right? Like professional service providers are a white collar group of people who are not necessarily um, plugged into the kind of realities that uh, that shape the on the ground life for workers, folks along a business's supply chain, their consumers. Um, you know, we started off this conversation by talking about a multiplicity of realities. And one of the things that was genuinely surprising to me was how, you know, truly insulated from, from choosing my words carefully here, but, but from a, a kind of everyman reality, these elite families are, right? There's, uh, they go to elite schools, they take up elite jobs, they vacation in elite spaces, um, they probably don't use public transit, right? Like where are the interfaces with the everyday world? Um, do they know the, the pain of queuing at the Tesco or being, you know, jammed into the tube at rush hour, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, these, uh, a lifetime of these kind of aggregate experiences can produce a body of understanding or empathy or knowledge um, that can come to be absent over a period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, another point to, to pick up on there is something you mentioned about, you know, when you went in and spoke to um, founders and, and family principals at billion dollar businesses, they suffer from the same emotional challenges as, you know, their worlds are, are potentially different and, and what they see in that world is potentially different. But again, one of the... Um, common things I see in my work is the the logic-based approaches to structural things. So um, you might go to a lawyer and say, I'm struggling with this in my family business, and they will come back with a logical structure to help resolve that. Or you go to an accounting firm or auditor and and say, we're having this challenge within the family business. They come back with this logical, structural um, way to to, um, perhaps solve or try to solve that problem. And yet we're emotional creatures and therefore the the logic and the emotion side don't necessarily sit closely together. And that's kind of what I was hearing when you were saying about the the way in which things were um, being reported back from the people that you spoke to is that it's being dictated predominantly by this logical world when we're emotional creatures. Does, does that resonate with what you were hearing? Yeah, I think that that's true for any human. Um in the world, absolutely, and 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 this is why anthropology is a is a rich discipline. In family business members have additional challenges onto that because, uh, and and here's where my own capacity to step into another's shoes is truly stretched. Is what it must be like to go through the world where everybody wants your money or a piece of your business and is nice to you because of that. And even on this research project, when myself and colleagues were coming up with interview questions, there was pushback on whether or not we could ask family businesses about uh, what they think about any responsibilities they feel they have toward global wealth inequality. The idea being that it would be a bit rude. It would put them on the spot and we don't want to offend them. And I just think about that moment 
you know, again, an aggregate over the years of, of getting advice and hearing from people who don't want to offend you, who want to keep your business, who want to, you know, retain access to, to the money that you have. And, you know, how can that not over time influence what the people around you say? And so I think it really is a, you know, a, a meaningful struggle for these families to ensure that they have lines out beyond this into the real world that, that they trust. And, uh, you know, this is why the toolkit talks about audit as being a potentially very powerful way for families to find external voices who can really assess the, um, the validity of what they're doing and whether or not their purpose or values uh, sort of take them where they need to be. And I'm using audit instead of blunter tools like policy or regulations, not because I don't believe that those are important, but because we need lots of arrows in the quiver. Uh-huh. And, you know, there's a place for regulation, there's a place for policy, um, but there's also a need to find institutionalizable ways for families to, you know, as I said, break out from the, the thought silos that get created through the, you know, often decades long relationships that they have with different professional service providers. Yeah, um, I agree on that point as well. Just picking, again, one of the narratives you mentioned around caring about our community. And because we're looking at this from a sustainability perspective, um, we're talking about looking beyond the core operation of the business. We're looking at encompassing this over the, the overarching operations of the family as a whole. You suggest as well with the business side of things is going beyond your business to your supply chain and looking at what their impact is and having conversations. And our audience won't know this, but I've recorded an interview for this series for a business that has done exactly that. And it's a fantastic example of them looking from the birth to the death of their product and looking at the entire um, sort of carbon footprint of that. And their aim is to offset that. Now, they can't do that without talking to their suppliers. And that's something, again, that you suggested where family can go beyond just what they're doing and influence others as well. Uh, Can can you speak a a bit more to that? Sure. So I lived in and worked and conducted research in Bangladesh for a number of years before starting this project. uh, My world before this was Islamic finance. And when I was... uh, in Bangladesh, various various engagements would put me in conversations with various different kinds of people. And when I would speak with folks who were involved in the garment manufacturing sector, even if they were sub-sub uh, suppliers, they knew the ultimate destination for their garment. In their mind, they were producing something for, uh, let's say, Primark. Primark was visible to them. To Primark, that same person is invisible. And it's this discrepancy that has to be accounted for, that even if a business doesn't see a sub-sub supplier as being part of their community, that sub-sub supplier likely considers themselves to be part of the community of the business that is the ultimate purchaser of their garment. And this is why there are these, you know, periodic legal challenges that spring up where someone along the supply chain attempts to hold a company responsible for what they believe to be is is a a violation of their rights in some way. 
The U.S. Supreme Court just ruled on a, I think, 13 or 15-year-old case against Nestle and Cargill, Cargill being a family-owned business uh, from workers on cocoa plantations in, I believe, the Côte d'Ivoire. Switzerland recently didn't pass a law that would have held companies legally responsible for claims made where they have operations, but it did come close to passing. So I think we're going to see more of these kind of challenges coming, especially because of the way that social media has made grievances and transnational communities more visible and more easily formed. And so the question for family businesses is, do you want to be in a posture of reactiveness or do you want to be proactive and make contact uh, with your supply chain and start to think of them as part of your community. Um, the other point to note around community was that it's almost said as an offhand comment, we care about our community. Our community is important to us. We're massively consequential to our community. So in an interview series that myself and a colleague on the project, uh, Mary Johnstone-Louis, did with the principals of family businesses, we asked them, who's your community? The amount of confusion that that question generated (laughs) was shocking only because of the extent to which people kept telling us they care about their community, but then were unable to actually proactively articulate who that is. And that's that's a really interesting discrepancy for family members to to talk about. You know, anyone listening right now, who is your community? Uh, Are you caring for whoever you just named? Um, If that community doesn't include your Chinese factories, why not? Um, And this leads us to very interesting um, and nuanced conversations around belonging, around power, around visibility, racism, right? This can take us any number of places. One of the important aspects around that as well is if you can define your community, and again, I won't ruin the future interview that I have that's pre-recorded compared to this recording <laughs> lost in the matrix here um but, but they this particular company can demonstrate who their community are and and waded through not just their behaviors but by measuring it and by recording it and saying this is who we consider it and this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it and i think it's a very valuable lesson to say yes let's let's define who our community are and, and agree that as a family and let's then report and measure what it is that we're actually doing to back up the claim that we support our community and the community is really valuable to us. Because again, if you just tell yourself the narrative that we support our community, we love our local community, we're we're the bedrock of the local community, that can sometimes be enough to think, well, we we can get complacent about this because we're telling ourselves that this is happening without actually proving it. Um, And again, I'm guessing that the transparency element of it around reporting and recording what it is you're doing is an important aspect of um, sustaining that uh, approach and that strategy. It is, um, unless it's being driven by the marketing department or the communications department. And that's a really important caveat. It matters who who is leading this and why they're doing it. Because if this is being done to, you know, tick a a sort of socially aware box, then it doesn't, you know, it it, it just doesn't pass muster. And the public will be able to tell, you know, that that will come across uh, inevitably at a certain point. I'm in danger of 
contradicting myself a little bit here anyway, in that the there seems to be an awful lot of focus on sustainability and ESG, and it's it's on a lot of mainstream sort of news headlines and um, certainly from a consumer's um, perspective, they're looking for businesses to do that. And so, that, again, there is a danger that businesses will go, we need an ESG strategy, let's employ a, a marketing department or a, a communication department to tell everyone how great this this is. And I guess what the toolkit that you've produced does is actually go, no, this is what this is what it means. This, these are things that you can practically use, that you can take examples from other businesses that have done it and apply them to your own business and then talk about it from a public perspective and be transparent and, and be open about it. And one of the, again, I don't know whether this is a, a narrative that perhaps we um, tell ourselves about family businesses that may not be true, but a lot of them are very private because they don't necessarily want to shout from the rooftops that they're doing all these great things and um, you know, the family values are borne out through the, act- the activities of the business. And they're not perhaps as good at shouting about it as um, businesses that, that see more in, in terms of the marketing and PR side as a result and profitability. But this toolkit allows them access to the stuff that they're going to need in order to um, prove that they're caring about their community as an example. Indeed. And humility is the, the humility and the privacy that you reference is, is examined a bit in the narrative around, um, I don't consider the business as something that belongs to me. I consider myself a steward of it for the next generation, uh, where I absolutely grant that humility and privacy is in large part because of the discomfort and social awkwardness of having wealth and of being a kid who was teased on the playground because you had a certain last name or because you know, your daddy will make sure that X or Y happens for you and you don't have to work for it. There's a lot of baggage there. Um, what needs to be acknowledged, however, is that being humble uh, or being private doesn't diminish the power, influence, platform, and other benefits that are still accruing to that person, even if they're humble, right? You can be humble all you want. You still have tens of thousands of employees. And so it's keeping one's eye on that ball that matters. And if you have the ability to make things better for your hundreds of thousands of employees, tens of thousands, or even thousands of employees, then, you know, there's a an operational, ethical, and sort of just practical, you know, set of reasons to do so. And uh, I hope that this document will encourage families to be more bold, to be brave, um, especially if they're young, be brave in speaking to their parents. And, uh, you know, if they're current gen, or if they're, they're older, then be brave, because you're still responding to the legacy of, of those who came before you. And, you know, those challenges are real. I don't, they don't discount or diminish them at all. Um, but but decisive action happens all the time, right? Decisive action was taken in the wake of COVID. Decisive action can be taken to meet the environmental and social challenges of the day. The toolkit is called a toolkit for responsible ownership. And this might sound like a silly question, but where does sustainability sit in terms of responsible ownership does responsible ownership come first and and lead to like sustainable strategies that is it the other way around where do you see it in terms of what your findings are from 
the ownership project? So our findings are that sustainability has always been alive and well for family businesses with respect to the sustainability of the enterprise and their own wealth. Uh Meaning what we mean by sustainability really matters here. There has always been an inward investment in keeping the business financially sustainable, viable, keeping the family wealth and lifestyle style sustainable. If you um, are talking about a more outward sustainability in terms of environmental sustainability, then that is, that's a very different set of, um, of concerns. Uh, But I want, you know, it might be a little pedantic for me to parse your use of sustainability, but you know, in the interviews that Mary and I have done, in my observations of families, there is a casualness with the use of, of language, right? Sustainability is a word that gets used often and it isn't parsed. Responsibility is a word that is used often, isn't parsed. Same with long-termism. And in the casual use of these words, that's where lack of accountability flourishes, right? So yeah. This this is part of the argument of the toolkit, which is to say, listen, there's certain words and phrases that become euphemistic or that are meant to flag a set of issues, but in their euphemistic use, one ends up over time feeling as though these issues are top of mind, and they might actually be top of mind because you're saying the words, uh, but there isn't material, durable action to back it up. Yeah. And again, earlier in the series, we covered um, with Andrew Bryson from um, Family Business Network International. We, we covered their work with UNCTAD around the uh, Family Business for Sustainable Development project and pointed them in the direction of ways in which you can start to look at how does this become more than a buzz phrase or something that is lacks a, def- a definition and and... Um, I think as well, if you combine the idea of this series is to give families the resources to be able to go, we really want this to be part of what we're doing. It's important to us as a family, but it needs to go beyond that and be something that creates action, creates accountability. And by utilising the resources that are available to people, including this um, toolkit, is a step forward towards that. It's, uh, you know, it's not... You don't just pick one thing and go, we'll do that. And, and that's fantastic. And that, now we pick that box and, and move on because it's such a, um, a overarching uh, and in, potentially impactful thing to, to have uh, within the business. But utilizing the various tools and, and resources that are available is a great place to start. It's, again, would agree on that from where you're, you've come from, what you've heard from, from other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. We covered some of the narratives. I I don't think we necessarily have time to, to cover them all. Is there anyone um, you mentioned about the, the ownership side of it being the one that, that provided you with the most interest? Is there anything more from that that you wanted to, to get across on the show? Well, I, I would refer people back to, to the toolkit. And so I think my, my closing message is Google. The, uh, the ownership project at Oxford that will take you to our website. And uh, if you Google my name, Bridget Custon, that takes you to my website. Both places will have the toolkit. 
in this era of social media usage where attention spans are limited, I am not giving anyone any shortcuts. <laughs> I think that the entire document is uh, is worthy of being read, if only for the uh, the what I hope are interesting anthropological insights into the large family business community. And uh, you know, I, I want to end on on a note of 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 optimism, which is you know, the other takeaway that isn't in the toolkit, which is that after all of these conversations and interviews and observations, I am hopeful. Uh, I don't believe in the caricatures of untrammeled greed. I believe in lots of other structural challenges that are out there, uh, but the people that I have met are inspired and inspiring and passionate and motivated and, uh, you know, they need some, some tools and resources to help them put their visions into action. But, um, you know, but I'm coming from a place of optimism about what can be, about what can be accomplished. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to, to everyone who's on that path and going down that road, which can be lonely and hard. And, uh, yeah, it's just been such a privilege to, um, to meet these families and, and hear what they're doing and, and learn from them and then share it with other families and just be that conduit. Yeah, fantastic. And again, I can highly recommend the toolkit. It is exceptionally useful. It's also um, potentially quite challenging for, for people reading it. It's not, you know, just a, a tick box thing to say we're doing this. It's going to challenge some of the things that you're you're doing now, but it's, it's very beneficial. So we will link that up in the show notes as well. Bridget, thank you so much for coming on the show and um, sharing this with us. I think it's a really important piece of work. And it will have a, a huge impact on the, the sort of world of family business. So thank you for your time and your insights on uh, today's show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for this wonderful, urgent and you know, necessary series. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.